welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Well, folks, that, uh, that day will surely come, a day that is fixed, a day that will be absolutely fair, and a day when the judgment rendered is absolutely final. What Alistair Begg has described so succinctly in that video is the great and awesome day of the Lord. It is the same day depicted in our passage today from 2 Thessalonians and repeatedly described by Jesus and his apostles in the New Testament. And the same day predicted by the holy prophets even centuries before. And if you possess just a little bit of familiarity with the prophet named Joel, uh, you probably recognize the title of my message today originated from his writing. Uh, I kind of stole it from him. Um, That's probably okay because Joel is quoted uh, numerous times in the New Testament uh, as well. Joel describes this day, Joel chapter 2 and verse 31, as the great and awesome day of the Lord. Earlier in his book, Joel describes this day precisely as does Jesus. Actually, it is Jesus who gets his material from the prophet Joel. Joel states, Before them, the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great. For strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, Joel says. Who can endure it? And it would not be fair if I did not also include the gracious remedy Joel himself has included. He continues there by saying the following, quote, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. Last week, Our passage taught us how Jesus is strong and how he is kind to us who believe our sins have been righteously judged in Jesus at the cross. Christians then become objects of God's grace and peace. That is what we learned last Sunday. And for as long as God has been proclaiming that a final day of judgment will come with certainty uh, for as equally as long as he has been proclaiming that through the prophets, he has also announced that he has left open a window of mercy, loving mercy. 
Yet, just as the door to the ark eventually closed back in the day of Noah, today's window for salvation will eventually close on all who are listening. And that window for salvation is not necessarily shut on this future day of the Lord. Your window may close due to a tragic accident during the prime of your youth. Hebrews 9 verse 27 assures us, it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. So there exists no second window of opportunity. Jesus explained himself through the account of the rich man and Lazarus. You can find that in Luke chapter 16. That immediately after you die, there is a great chasm fixed between those who are saved and those who are damned. So that, Jesus says, that none may cross over. Scripture offers no second chances. There exists no purgatory to pay your debt yourself after you die. Folks, if you believe there is, that is not faith in Christ dying for your sins. That is faith in suffering for your own sins in purgatory. That is not Christian. There are also no prayers for salvation of the dead in Scripture or indulgences to buy your way out. Folks, these are concoctions formulated by men to appease the emotions of those who have deceased relatives who died apart from Christ. Young people, your scriptural responsibility to believe in Christ, it is your own during this lifetime. Your surviving relatives cannot beg or buy your way out of condemnation for you. It won't happen. My point is, regardless of how you die or when you die, this future day of the Lord's judgment, it is fixed. And everybody is invited. For Christians, we've learned that the dead in Christ shall rise first, and the rest of us will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air as God pours out the full extent of his wrath on all of those left behind on earth. Folks, it's one single cataclysmic day. It's the great and awesome day of the Lord. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10, the Apostle Paul urged believers to, to live expecting, expectantly, to expect this day. He says, live to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. It will be a great and awesome day of the Lord, says Joel. And again, he declared before them, the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, 
the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So in Matthew 24, when Jesus quotes Joel, for the benefit of those who may have recently joined us, obviously Jesus is describing the same event here. He says, quote, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And Jesus says, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will, to get gather, they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Notice Jesus assures this gathering of God's elect into the sky comes post-tribulation. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. And on this same day of the Lord, stick this in your pocket for reference a little bit later, all right? Hang on to this. Jesus continues. He says, heaven and earth will pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But on that day, or, or of that day, no one knows the hour. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Then he says, then the parousia, the coming of the Son of Man, will be just like the days of Noah. It will com be completely sudden. It will be completely unexpected. Jesus says they were eating and drinking. They were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. In Luke 17, Jesus assures it will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. So please keep all of this in mind as I read our passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It will begin in verse 6. Why does Joel represent this as a great and awesome day? Well, certainly not because we celebrate the destruction of ungodly men and women. That, that is not the reason it's a great and awesome day. Uh, nor is it only because Jesus appears, though that, is, that will be wonderful. The passage tells us it is a great and awesome day as it is the day when God finally establishes justice on the earth. Justice for the elect. As Alistair stated, it is a day that is fixed a day that will be absolutely fair, and a day when the judgment rendered is absolutely final. It's a day when we are finally rescued from all of our persecutions and afflictions. If you have a King James Version or a New King James uh, Bible, uh, verse 4 correctly translates this Greek as ensuring this will mark the end of 
not our afflictions, but the end of our tribulations. As Jesus agrees, this occurs immediately after the tribulation of those days. Same Greek word. In verse 6, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when? When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when? When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. That is when. It's on that day. Now the question may be asked, uh, how can we know for sure or for certain uh, this is the same parousia, or coming of Christ, uh, same rapture and day of the Lord that Paul described back in 1 Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5. Uh, could this describe possibly a completely different series of events? No. Well, why? Because following in just a couple more verses, beginning of chapter 2, in verse 1, Paul says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the perusia of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with Him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or to be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So this all clearly depicts our same gathering together to meet the Lord in the air, the same parousia or coming of Christ, and the same day of the Lord that Paul described in his first letter. It's not a distinct and separate series of events. Um, the relief to our tribulations, it's going to come on precisely the same day that God deals out retribution to those who do not know him and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. I, I personally, I don't understand the difficulty in, uh, in seeing this. In verse 8, those who do not know God, that includes the agnostics, the pagans across the whole earth who've, who've never even heard the gospel, why would they be judged? Well, they'll be judged because they have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And they have rejected what they do know about God as it is revealed in nature. And their response to nature has been to worship the creation rather than the creator. So you do not need to have heard of Jesus Christ or reject Jesus to be guilty. Meanwhile, those who do not obey the gospel includes those who have plainly heard the good news of Jesus Christ, God's Son, like everyone here, but have still refused to accept Christ as Savior 
perhaps like someone here. This day is not going to go well for you either. And because God is perfectly just, based on the gospel knowledge that you have rejected about Jesus, you will receive an even greater condemnation than those who never heard the gospel at all. As Alistair said, this day is going to be absolutely fair. For we who have trusted in Christ, however, Romans 8 verse 1 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't have to fear this day. Through faith in Christ, we have become vessels of God's loving mercy. Our sins are, are paid. The, our debt is paid through Christ on the cross. Uh, therefore, this becomes a, a great and awesome day of relief for us. It's a wonderful day for us. Our persecution and affliction and tribulation, it finally ends. And like 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 7 describes righteous Lot, though there is no record of Lot ever suffering physically, Peter assures that while living in Sodom, he was, he was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, speaking of Lot, while living among them, he felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. And how did God rescue Lot and his daughters? Well, he rescued them by sending in his angels to grab them by the hands and take them out of Sodom. He rescued them from the wrath that fell upon Sodom. It's a picture of the end times. Christ says his, his angels uh, will come to rapture us out of this world. Similarly, now, most of us haven't suffered physically for our faith in Christ. But because we are forced to watch, well, among other things, those who behave sensually and homosexually and who celebrate the murderous acts of, of unborn children, we feel our righteous souls tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Even having to live on this earth amongst them, it is an affliction. We feel our souls afflicted having to watch all of what is going on. Uh, I don't know if you ever uh, watch any of the, the crime network. And some of it is pretty gruesome. You might not want to go there. It is dumbfounding. What man will do to one another? It's so sad. It is so sad to see what man will do to one another. It's agony. It's an affliction to have to live um, through all of this. And as Romans 1 verse 32 reminds us, it's not only those who practice such things who are worthy of death, but it is also those who give hearty approval to those who practice such things. Don't miss that. 
So this day of condemnation does not only befall unbelievers who, who personally commit those acts of indecency, it also falls on those who give their, their hearty approval and vote for politicians who, who campaign on preserving such rights for people to commit such acts. And God's judgment will also fall on justices in this day who assert that Roe v. Wade is its already settled law, they want to say. Well, the earlier laws that identified abortion as murder was settled law before Roe v. Wade, centuries before Roe v. Wade. How about we just overturn Roe v. Wade and change back the law? If you want to go back to precedent. How about we not give hearty approval to politicians who celebrate and de defend behavior that is contrary to God's law? Folks, the Bible assures that abortion is not a woman's right, nor is abortion protected by name anywhere in the Constitution at all. Now the saving grace. The saving grace is that God has left open a window of mercy for all of us. I do realize there's likely a person here, maybe more than one, who has had such a procedure. There are probably several who in the past have given it their hearty approval. There are probably many of us who used to believe premarital sex was just okay and I'm speaking and including myself when I say we have all sinned in many ways. In many grievous ways we have sinned. Nobody besides Christ is special in this way. For he knew no sin, yet he became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our righteousness is only in Christ. We're all in the same boat. We all have a past of sin. And God is merciful, leaving open a window of mercy. And Joel's message is this. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, he says, rend your heart. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Who knows, says Joel, whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Folks, relent, repent, turn from your past and trust in Christ. And whether your sin is, or your sin of preference, or your sin of choice, whether it's more subtle, like the love of money, or pride, or if it involves things like sexual immorality in its numerous forms, murder, gender confusion, who can even fathom such a thing? Can you believe that? They're actually arguing about confusion of genders. You're asking who are supposed to be some of the most brilliant people in the world 
the most powerful people in the world. And on TV, they can't even define for you what a woman is. Can you fathom that? Boy, you talk about making the Bible relevant. A lot of churches say, you know, we got to make that Bible relevant. I don't have to make the Bible relevant. Just turn on your TV. Can you believe it? Can you believe what people will accept? There's surely a day of judgment coming. Yet there is a full pardon for all sins offered through the cross. Folks, this is a tough passage. A tough passage. But it is not unkind pointing out our sin in attempts to lead people to Christ. What is unkind is like Alistair Begg implied, suggesting to people that they don't need to worry about this day of reckoning that is to come. That's what's unkind, telling people, don't worry. The predominant message given today among churches is this. God is love. Jesus is everybody's best friend. And regardless of your continued behavior, he's just going to make sure that nobody ever has to go to hell. Boy, that is just one evidence of a great apostasy in churches that we are going to find in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. Before Jesus comes, Paul says the apostasy, a, a falling away from true Christianity, that will come first. And we are surely observing an apostasy today. Are we at, um, are we at, or are we in the final stages of apostasy? You know, the last stage of apostasy before Christ returns. I don't know. I don't know. But I do know our culture looks increasingly like Sodom. America, the greatest nation ever, and don't get me wrong, I'm very thankful to be loving in, or living in this country and loving in this country. But America, the greatest nation ever, has aborted over 60 million babies. The idolizing of man and money has probably never more saturated the earth. And professing Christians will forsake the assembly of divine worship for virtually any alternate form of entertainment. Is this the world, uh, the end of the world as we know it? I think it probably is. I'm not sure. My guess, best guess is yes. Yet cultural conditions were also really grim during the reign of Israel's king, Josiah. Idolatry, immorality, spiritual apathy. Boy, it dominated the kingdom when King Uzziah uh, was king over Israel. And then God dispatched a preacher named Zephaniah. Zephaniah was a descendant we saw of King Hezekiah. So unique among the writing prophets, uh, Zephaniah had royal blood. 
He had access to royalty. And Zephaniah came preaching what, according to our early scripture, earlier scripture reading? Well, he declares, the day of the Lord is near. Zephaniah said in chapter 1 and verse 14, near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. Boy, that's a line, isn't it? Do you think he's serious? Listen, the day of the Lord. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly, a day of wrath is that day. And the Lord God says through Zephaniah, I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth, all the earth will be devoured in fire of his jealousy. For he will make a complete end, indeed a, ter a terrifying one. All the earth is going to be devoured in that day. And what do we know from the Old Testament and the definition of a day? It's a 24-hour period, right? Yeah, morning and evening, day one. You always hear the arguments that the Hebrew word day is always a day. It's not something other than a day. Keep that in your pocket in the front too. Well, I wonder how many people would allow Zephaniah to preach today. There wouldn't be many. Does it sound like there's going to be any way to escape? Not a way to escape other than Christ. But do you know what also happened during King Josiah's day? During his reign? Josiah apparently heard Zephaniah's preaching. And once King Josiah rationalized that this day of the Lord's judgment is coming... Once he came to his senses, he initiated a spiritual reform across the whole kingdom. It's the reforms of Josiah. You've probably heard about them in Sunday school. He had the priests search for the law of God, and they found it. They dusted it off, and they read it aloud. And the word of God transformed that whole culture for a season under Josiah, at least partially in response to Zephaniah's preaching. But boy, that's some hard preaching, isn't it? Folks, this is exactly what a warning of God's judgment does. Fear of the Lord reforms the heart so that before this day of wrath comes, we change teams. Do you think King Josiah would have changed if Zephaniah would have come preaching a message that says, well, God loves you and accepts you just like you are? Does such a message motivate a sinner to repent? No, it just emboldens them to continue sinning. There's a song you shouldn't listen to but it's by Lady Gaga. And she says, I was born this way. 
And we say as Christians, we know. That's the problem. You were born dead in your trespasses and sins, just like us. And what you need is to be reborn again, says Jesus. A new life alive to Christ. For Jesus says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. John the Baptist said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, Well, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You think he said it like that? No. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee of the wrath to come? And he warned them, well, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then after the new covenant is ratified at the cross through the body of Christ, Peter proclaims this at Pentecost. He says, repent. And each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, Peter doesn't suggest there that water baptism saves, uh, but that the repentance the remorse of heart, the change that you have in your heart that drives you to want to be identified with Christ through water baptism, it is that change of heart, that faith in Christ that saves. Folks, preaching God's judgment does not condemn. It saves. Through urging people to seek shelter in Christ. Flee from the wrath to come. The preaching of God's judgment saves. That's why you see the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles and Jesus all telling people to flee from this day. There is soon to come a great and awesome day of the Lord. And folks, it may be as near as your next left turn in front of a Mack truck. You don't know you have time. We can't take tomorrow for granted. And you dare not wait until tomorrow to change teams. Is it acceptable to scare people into the kingdom of God? Yeah. Of course. It is our fear of God, Him being, being holy and righteous, and the fact that He must judge sins is what drives every believer to faith and repentance. Every one of us should have a fear of that day that drives us to find shelter in Christ. Alistair Begg warned in the video I played earlier, the Bible makes clear, says Alistair, that we won't escape detection or conviction or sentence forever. There is going to be a payday. And the idea that God is too kind ever to condemn sin and that everyone in the end will go to heaven does not actually find a basis in the Bible itself. That's true. 
Surely our passage today in verse 7 assures that on that day when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, he will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So this day fixes their eternal state. A theologian named Robert Thomas writes, quote, Banishment from the Lord's presence is what Jesus taught about punishment. Words cannot adequately express the misery of this condition. As Alistair Begg said, it is a day that is fixed, a day that will be absolutely fair, and a day when the judgment rendered is absolutely final. Now I made quite a lot of reference to this passage, verses 6 through 10, while preaching 1 Thessalonians, and I realize you, you may be getting a little weary of it. But before we move beyond this passage, I, like, I would like us to make just a few eschatological, that means end times observations. Here's just a few end times observations from this passage before we move beyond it. To do so, without losing your place where you're at in 2 Thessalonians, I'd like you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. where precisely like Jesus does when describing the day of his return in Luke 17, Peter affirms in 2 Peter chapter 2 that mankind's behavior will be similar to the days of Noah and the days of Lot. In verse 1, among Christians there will arise many false teachers Many will follow their sensuality, says Peter. Because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. Christianity will be disparaged because of them. And in their greed, the false teachers will exploit you with false words. And concerning this great and awesome day of our Lord's return, Jesus states in Matthew 7, Many will say to me on that day, many. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and, and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice iniquity. Describes this group as many. You may know that in that same context of Matthew 7, Jesus acknowledges that contrary to this path that is followed by many, narrow is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. In fact, to amplify this point, Jesus states in Luke 18 and verse 8, uh, in the context of the elect crying out to God to bring justice to the earth, that's the setting, the elect crying out to God, when are you going to bring justice? And there Jesus laments, quote, saying, 
quote, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And, and the implica implication there is that Christians will remain a comparatively small, persecuted minority up until the day Christ returns. I don't think that surprises most of us. And our passage in 2 Thessalonians likewise assures our suffering and our affliction, literally our tribulation, will continue until Christ returns to grant us relief in verse 7. And at that time, on this day of the Lord, he will repay with affliction those who afflict us, which again which again implies Christians will remain a persecuted minority until Jesus returns. Let's face it. If we ever became a majority, we would no longer tolerate their affliction, right? We'd pass laws to prevent them from afflicting us in these ways. So we're a minority until the day the Lord comes. And the, the Apostle Peter says, like in the days of Noah and Lot, lawlessness will abound. In 2 Peter 3, 3, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. That's the last days. Verse 7, but by God's word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. And that simply means that although it appears or it seems to us as if God has delayed a long time, judgment will surely come in God's timing. And you probably want to look with me at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Remember, earlier Jesus said about the day of his coming, pull that out of your pocket, heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will never pass away. And Peter says in verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in, in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the perusia of the day of God, the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens and earth will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Don't miss this. But according to his promise, we, Peter's including himself here, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Here are three major eschatological themes that are, that at a bare minimum, um, ought to cause you to think. Ought to cause you uh, to step back and think. Three major eschatological end times themes. Number one, lawlessness will abound as it did during Noah 
and Lot. Mockers will continue their mocking and Christians will remain a relatively small persecuted minority until Christ returns. The way is narrow and there are few who find it. Have you heard of a theological view called post-millennialism? This is deeper water than many, maybe most of us really wish to wade. Uh, but in a nutshell, post-millennialism teaches that Christ will wait to return until we have effectively Christianized the earth. They do not defend an imminent return of Christ. That means a return that could occur at any moment. Um, they believe, they're very optimistic. They believe that through the preaching of the gospel, we will eventually introduce a golden global age of Christianity to which Jesus will be warmly welcomed when he returns. Yeah. Well, Proponents of this include Dr. James White, you might have heard of him, Alpha and Omega Ministries, uh, Jeff Durbin of Apologia Church in Phoenix. They are post-millennial. Now, I would not claim that these men are not seriously Christian, honestly. But they're seriously wrong. And, and they're very intelligent. They have some really good material that you can gain a lot from. But post-millennialism, the fact that we're going to, or the idea that we're going to Christianize the earth to welcome Jesus back, it's incompatible with Scripture. Relief to our afflictions doesn't arrive until Christ arrives. Then God will repay those who afflict us. Folks, there's, there's no rational way to view Scripture except that like Noah and Lot, we will remain a marginalized and persecuted minority until Christ returns. Then Jesus will Christianize the earth. Which leads us to eschatological point number two. Jesus is going to do so on a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Peter states that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Jesus is quoting Joel when assuring that the old sun, moon, and stars will fail. It is a day in which the heavens will pass away with a roar of the elements. They'll be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be born, burned up on that day. And since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, says Peter, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct? and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and new earth. When our old associate pastor, he wasn't old, he's a young guy, Gerald, some of you met him, most of you probably met him, a few maybe haven't. Um, when he was taking eschatology or the study of end times in his final semester at Dallas Seminary, uh, he was studying at a remote campus in Atlanta, and I sent with him about a half dozen questions on the end times that I just wasn't experienced enough 
to ask back when I was a student there. Just didn't have enough miles under the shoes. This is one of the questions. And Gerald asked their professor of systematic theology, in 2 Peter 3, where do you find a thousand-year delay between the day of Christ's coming and the inauguration of a new heavens and earth? To his credit, the professor at Dallas Seminary replied honestly. He said, yeah, we're not quite sure how that works. John MacArthur, a very brilliant and excellent preacher, he says when Jesus returns, he will rule, Jesus will rule, on a renewed heaven, under a, new he a renewed heaven and on a renewed earth, and then the new heavens and new earth aren't established until a thousand years later. Which honestly, you never find anywhere in Scripture. So much for MacArthur being the only one who takes Scripture literally. He's not. Here's what Scripture says literally in 2 Peter 3.10. On the day of the Lord, when Jesus returns, he's going to physically reign on a new heaven and new earth, period. After he returns, is Jesus going to reign on the earth for a thousand years? I guarantee it. Scripture guarantees it. Before that, on the day of the Lord, he judges the rebellious, and his reign will consist of, of a new heaven and new earth. He's for sure going to reign on earth. He's going to have a thousand year reign, some say even longer. All right? And during that reign, he's going to sort out all of our disagreements where we can all finally get along. All right? By the way, I have to add this. If you debate an amillennialist, beware. Or be aware. Don't beware. Be aware. Uh, the president of Dallas Seminary, Mark Bailey, uh, told us students in class back in the day, he said, before you go to debate or dispute someone or to drag them through the mud, don't do that, actually. Understand what they believe. Don't go in representing them as something that they have not represented themselves. Understand what they believe before you go into dialogue with them politely. The amillennialist is going to claim, verse 8 describes a thousand years as being an indefinite period of time before the day of the Lord. You follow me? They're not idiots. If you are confused, that's why so many today have now turned pan-millennialism. It'll all pan out in the end. Don't tell me you just heard that. But people who disagree one way or another, it isn't always because they aren't sincere about Christ. We need to be kind. We need to be kind with those who disagree with us uh, and always point to Scripture 
to try to learn and to grow. A third point on eschatology, and I'm almost finished. It's another question that I sent with Gerald. Uh, it arises out of our passage in 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 7, which says, Relief to our afflictions comes on the same day of the Lord that Jesus, that same day of the Lord that Jesus deals out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when? When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day. So the question poised was, where do you find a seven-year gap, a seven-year period between the day that relief comes for believers, i.e. the rapture, and the day of judgment of unbelievers? Where do you find this seven-year gap? Scripture describes both as occurring on the same day. How long is a day? Remember, we said earlier. It's a day. It's taking the Scripture literally, right? And those who embrace a pre-tribulation rapture insist there must exist seven years between our being raptured at the coming of Christ on the day of the Lord's judgment. Or, or seven years between the rapture and the day of coming of the Lord's judgment. It's simply not there. It's not there. And the professor at Dallas Seminary responded to Gerald, yeah, we aren't completely sure how that fits either. He's honest. I think a lot of us have lived much of our lives or most of our lives not sure exactly how everything fits. He did offer John MacArthur's position that this day of the Lord may last up to seven years. Now, how is that taking a day in the Bible as literal? And it still doesn't answer why in First and Second Thessalonians you never find a reference to a seven-year gap between the rapture and the day of judgment. They occur on the same day. And as, this is honest as I can be, as much as I sincerely respect the life work of John MacArthur, and I do, I have, I have gained so much from his work as much as I honestly respect him, don't allow the group that follows him to suggest that they are the only ones who take Scripture literally. Often they do not. In fact, I would humbly propose, you can disagree with me on this, I would humbly propose that though all Christians recognize certain genres of Scripture are to be taken figuratively, Others are to be taken symbolically. I would propose the post-tribulation view takes Scripture more literally. The view that the church is now suffering an age of tribulation and that when Christ returns, he will rapture his church on the same day that he punishes those left behind and that he will then reign under new heavens and on a new earth, that view takes the New Testament 
at face value. It's more literal. A pre-tribulation rapture followed by a seven-year tribulation. That was first popularized, by the way, I mentioned this when we started the series. That was first popularized by John Nelson Darby around the year 1830. So it's kind of a newcomer in theological circles. It inserts seven years for a couple reasons. One of them I'm going to address next Sunday. That'll be the day that we commemorate commemorate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Folks, you do not want to miss next Sunday. And one big question is this. Did Jesus legitimately offer himself to the nation of Israel as their king? Or does God still owe the Jew something? And to determine this, we are going to have to take a close look at the Abrahamic covenant offered to Abraham as a unilateral covenant made by God. We're going to take a close look at that next week. You don't want to miss it. On Easter, I didn't have it planned out this way, but on Resurrection Sunday, we're probably going to be in Daniel chapter 9. Those of you who are familiar with Daniel 9, oh, you don't want to miss that one either. The one right there. Good stuff, good stuff. Let's pray.